Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. Many of our listeners may remember the three-year-old Syrian boy, Alan Al-Kurdi, whose dead body was found face down on the Turkish shores in 2015. That shocking image of a child whose family had fled the war in Syria with the hope of a better future became the iconic image of the refugee crisis that exploded that year. Numbers suggest that about 850,000 people made it to Europe through the Mediterranean Sea in 2015. Today, the numbers may have gone down and the world has largely moved on, but the crisis is far from over. People from the Middle East, Africa, South Asia, and other parts of the world continue to make the dangerous journey. This week, we revisit the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean region, specifically in Greece, to see where things stand and the similarities with the refugee and migrant crisis at the U.S. southern border. We speak with Pan Zanatakis, a human rights worker with the Greek organization Human Rights 360, and Chicago-based attorney Lina Ode, who spent most of last year working with asylum seekers in Greece. The year 2015 was a year where the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean sort of exploded, earning wide media coverage and public debate. But the attention slowly faded, perhaps to be replaced with other immigration-related debates here in the U.S. But the crisis is far from over, right, Pan? Yes, uh, even though it does take a different form than the situation in 2015. In 2015, we're still talking about a situation where the borders were open. So people were crossing from uh, Turkey to the Greek islands or to the mainland, and then the borders to the north through the Balkan route uh, were open and people were traveling further onwards to Northern Europe. For example, indicatively in 2015, official UNHCR statistics mention about 850,000 people passing by Greece on the way to Northern Europe. The significant change that happened was the EU-Turkey statement in March 2016, which essentially created a second border, border of Europe on the Greek islands. So Lesbos, Chios, Samos, Leros and Kos, the five islands of the uh, Eastern Aegean, essentially constituted a new border where people could not cross further. So once someone arrived there, uh, they were stuck there until they got permission to move forward. So essentially the big difference from 2015 and any time after March 2016 is that uh, there was no more free movement of people or movement of people from Turkey to Northern Europe onwards. This creates uh, created a different uh, circumstance, especially since people were suddenly stuck in Greece and uh, the conditions were worsening. So especially in the beginning, in 2016, we saw the situation of uh, camps being created in the northern border with Macedonia essentially housing the people that were suddenly stuck in Greece. There was no uh, preparedness mechanism, neither by the Greek state or the European Union, uh, meaning that the first months were quite uh, hectic and there was a lack of uh, appropriate response by uh, government and international institutions to uh, essentially ensure the welfare of uh, the people uh, on the move. And so let's talk about the current situation right now on the ground. How does it look like? Do people live in tents, in camps still? How are the basic needs met? So at the moment, as mentioned, uh, the EU-Turkey statement is in effect, which means that uh, we could distinguish uh, Greece into two uh, specific zones, one being the mainland and the other being the five islands. So once someone arrives on the islands, 
they essentially are stuck there until they get permission to move onwards. People in the islands reside mainly in uh, camps, specifically referred to as reception identification centers, which are, in most cases are over capacity. We, most of us have heard of the situation in Moria, which is the, the most well-known reception identification center in Lesbos, which has been uh, at times four and five times over capacity and with the insufficient number of bathrooms, hygiene facilities, containers or adequate shelter for the people who are living there. So, for example, in the case of Lesbos, we see camps which are overflowing. Another example is Samos, which uh, has recently, the situation is getting worse than Lesbos. In Samos, we have a camp designed for 650 people, and uh, it is estimated that about 4,500 people live in the camps and the surroundings. As you can imagine, a lot of these people are living in tents. In some cases, some are pop-up tents that are not sufficient to protect someone from the elements of the winter. At the same time, especially in the case of Samos, which does not receive as much international attention as Lesbos, there is a lack of sufficient provision of healthcare, of social support, as well as basic uh, hygiene items and items that someone needs to survive. And it's a similar situation when it comes to food. The food provided by the Greek state is not up to standards. To give a general overview of uh, the numbers of people in Greece at the moment, we can estimate that there's about 80,000 refugees and asylum seekers uh, staying in Greece at the moment. About 15,000 of them staying in the islands, uh, waiting for permission to move into the mainland, and the rest being in the mainland. In the mainland, people are either housed in apartments under the Estia program, which started in 2016 and is run by UNHCR. We'll go into more detail on that later. So about 25,000 people reside in apartments. Then the rest, they reside in camps, which are usually uh, containerized camps, as well as some of them tented camps that are put up hastily to be able to respond to the growing need. And then there's a lot of people that reside in, in very informal accommodation. For example, in Athens, there's an estimated 2,000 people living in squats, essentially buildings which are not fit for human habitation as they do not have the adequate sanitation provisions and hygiene provisions. And then, of course, there's a, a small portion of people that are self-accommodated, especially people that have uh, some money with them and are able to pay their own rent. But essentially, we have three different types of accommodation, people living in the reception identification centers in the islands, people living in urban accommodation in apartments, and in some cases, renting hotels, and then people living in camps in the mainland. And then a growing homeless population due to the lack of housing capacity in these three different structures. And the Greek uh, government has been moving people from the islands, probably due to the overcapacity issue, from the islands to the mainland. If I'm not mistaken, I saw that there is an effort to do more of that starting last fall. Yes, it's usually a process that starts before winter. Before winter, the government panics and they start to want to move people out of the islands and into, into the mainland. The main issue is that the accommodation capacity, both in the mainland and in the islands, has remained pretty much stable in the past year. There has been a slight increase in the accommodation scheme in apartments in the mainland, but this is not sufficient to host as many people as required to be accommodated at the moment. So essentially, what we have is that we have a bottleneck of not enough accommodation places in the mainland and uh, camps which are over capacity in the islands. And some uh, articles I came across talk about that there is a sense that the camps are kept bad to deter new people from trying to make the trip, but people are still crossing the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, the numbers estimate that in January alone, there was over 2,000 people who made it to Greece. What countries do people usually come from? I think there's two aspects to your question. The first is essentially pretty much 
what Lena mentioned, that this is a policy-driven disaster. It is essentially policy that is causing the situation to be so grave in Greece and in other places as well. And this is definitely a deterrence mechanism to try to deter people from coming to Europe. Regarding the aspect of arrivals, as you mentioned, in the first 40 days of January, there's been uh, 2,400 people arriving by sea. But we should also note that there's uh, been 1,150 people that have arrived through the land border which is two distinctive kinds of entry points. And we can go uh, into more detail on that a bit further down. Regarding countries of origin, uh, according to official statistics, which uh, are something that requires a little bit of a debate, at this point, most people, 30% of people come from Afghanistan, about 24% come from Syria, then about 18% come from Iraq, and then there's a very high number of who are coming who are not officially uh, recording the statistics. Uh, this is, in my view, this is something which is highly political, as the whole dynamic of uh, keeping this border situation as such is uh, based on the EU-Turkey statement, meaning that there is a insufficient leverage from the European Union or international organizations to be able to converse uh, with Turkey for fear of collapse of the statement and the return to a situation like 2015, where thousands of people from the people who are currently in Turkey would start to come to Europe, which is exactly what this policy and these uh, conditions are there uh, to prevent. Actually, do you want to say something about the agreement between the European Union and Turkey? Because you referred to that a couple of times, and we talked about it in the past, but just to refresh people's minds. I think Lena might be more qualified to uh, speak about it in legalistic terms, uh, but I think the first and, and foremost, the most important aspect of it is that it's not technically an agreement. It is a joint statement published by the EU and Turkey, so it is not a treaty or an official agreement between two states. So the EU-Turkey statement, let's say a policy recommendation that came out of the ESI, the European Stability Initiative, and uh, the architect of the EU-Turkey statement is uh, Gerald Knaus. Essentially, it was a way to create, in, in their minds, a fair way of assessing who can and come to Europe and who couldn't. So essentially, the, the, the original agreement entailed a uh, financial contribution towards uh, by the European Union towards Turkey and some contribution towards, uh, towards Greece in order to keep people in Turkey. And uh, the initial agreement involved that people that would be crossing irregularly from Turkey to Greece would be returned and then the equivalent, the number of people would be uh, picked from Turkey to to come to Greece. But I think Lena is more qualified to uh, speak about it uh, from a, a legal perspective. Mm, do you want to say something, Lena, about that? Sure. I have to say that it's human rights workers on the ground like Pan who are ensuring that the rule of law and equity and justice are. So thank you for your work. About the EU-Turkey deal, just as Pan said, it's very much a policy and politically driven statement in which a number of organizations, including those in which I participated with, have condemned this policy because of its contravention of international law. And the primary concern surrounding how it contravenes international law refoulement of refugees to an unsafe third country, which is Turkey. However, back in September, the Greek state, which is the highest administrative court in the country, rejected the final appeals of two Syrian refugees, where previous decisions declaring their asylum claims inadmissible on the basis that Turkey was a safe third country. And where this is especially a concern as a, as a human rights lawyer, a lawyer for refugees and a lawyer for survivors of torture, are those who are particularly fleeing persecution and targeted political, racial, ethnic, gender-based violence, where it is known that in Turkey, a number of various 
groups have access to and also have the ability to target individuals in Turkey. So those who are seeking asylum because of specifically targeted nexus of fear persecution have inability then to actually attempt to seek safety and protection. The other aspect of it is the EU-Turkey deal has created this newly entrenched ad hoc legal procedural process, which is considered the quote-unquote admissibility process, which refugees who are attempting to seek asylum and maybe arrive to the shores of the Greek islands in what is considered irregular, though is quite regular for many asylum seekers through rafts etc. onto the shores, they have to then go through this admissibility process to prove a certain level of vulnerability so as not to be returned to Turkey. Therefore, not even having access to attempt to seek asylum to begin with and have a geographic restriction placed upon them. And often, depending on, again, this is ad hoc, these procedures can shift with time based on what the conditions on the ground are. And Again, this is pointing primarily towards EU policy. Refugees then could possibly be detained for months at a time before they have the ability to move within the camp or island itself. That has changed over various periods of time, in my experience. And despite this deterrence policy, people are still coming to the shores of Greece and the black market is proliferating, uh, subjecting people to be more vulnerable to the risk of human trafficking and the harms and dangers that accompany human trafficking, such as violence, sexual violence, organ trafficking, and beyond. That is Chicago-based attorney Lina Ode speaking with Mira Nabolsi about the ongoing refugee crisis in Greece. We'll hear more of Mira's conversation with Pan Zanatakis and with Chicago-based attorney Lina Ode. Stay with us. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I wanted to actually understand a little bit more about the legal status of refugees who are currently in Greece. Also, can you clarify to me, are there people who are seeking asylum or migrants who made it to Greece a few years ago, hoping to go elsewhere in Europe and still are in Greece? Just explain that a little bit to our listeners in terms of who's now in Greece and what's their legal status usually. And then the difference kind of between people maybe waiting, I think Pan touched a little bit on that, and people who are maybe more recent arrivals. So I'm not a lawyer, so I cannot uh, talk specifically about uh, uh, specific criteria. Uh, but yes, there have been people who have been in Greece for, uh, for some time. 
Um, it's important to note that before 2015, uh, the asylum service and the asylum system itself was not as developed, uh, meaning that it was a different uh, process. Uh, that Elena is more aware of that essentially was a it was a different overarching process about uh, the process of getting uh, asylum. I think the major difference is that one could speak of uh, various uh, nationalities and essentially the notion of uh, uh, high admissibility uh, countries and low admissibility countries of origin, in a way. And uh, within that, I think it's quite important to speak, to discuss about people who come from uh, countries with uh, low recognition rates of, uh, of asylum, uh, for example, uh, Northern Africa or uh, countries which are, let's say, not deemed uh, to be uh, refugee-producing countries in a lot of quotes. It just doesn't really work that way. So essentially, there's a, uh, one of the main challenges that uh, we're slowly facing in Greece is that uh, there's a there's an increasing number of people whose asylum case has been rejected, essentially being completely regular with no protection uh, from the law uh, and essentially um, with a threat of being uh, detained for, uh, the lack of, uh, for, for the lack of having papers. And estimations is that uh, this number could reach up to 27,000 people this year meaning that uh, there's a large number of people who are living in a, in a grey zone of uh, illegality with very few uh, provisions for their welfare. And these people are in Greece, whose cases were rejected and they're kind of stuck, basically, in limbo in Greece. Exactly, yes. Yes, undocumented. Mm-hmm. And because Greece, as Pan pointed out, historically has been a critical pathway for migrants and refugees seeking asylum from various parts of the world. There has been a history of migration with Greece, as you pointed out, as the pathway towards the rest of Europe. For refugees who were arriving prior to the EU Turkey deal, they were able to, some were able to be qualified for the relocation resettlement program to parts of the EU. And those were specific to Syrian refugees. After the EU-Turkey deal, however, that no longer became a possibility, including for those who are coming from Syria. And so refugee law, wherever it is in the world, does correspond and correlate to foreign policy and policy of the country. Of course, not um, overtly. Uh, So it really is contingent upon the policy of the country at that time. So, for example, because the EU categorized and acknowledged Syrians who are fleeing conflict as especially vulnerable and as a class and category of people who could have more access to seek asylum, again, this is not based on actual principles of international law because the EU-Turkey deal statement contravenes international law and denies people's ability and access to even seek asylum, to even talk about it in those terms is actually undermines the very uh, existence of the refugee resettlement regime. I think one of the key issues is how the resettlement regime works to prioritize particular classes of people be it Syrian refugees, Iraqi refugees, over, for example, Afghani refugees or others that they deem to be economic migrants. And and Greece as well, outside of its existence within the, the EU, has a history of migrant labor populations who are deeply disenfranchised and marginalized within Greece as well, to the point at which the Greek high court 
recently, and Pan, you can speak more to this, acknowledged the existence of essentially slave labor among a population of 42 Bangladeshis who were working in strawberry fields. So the ways in which the current regime exists in Greece and in the broader spectrum of the EU, because it is EU policy in the European Asylum Service Organization in which goes through the admissibility process, which falls under the EU-Turkey statement to lift the geographic restriction off of people to then be able to transfer to mainland Greece and possibly seek asylum is really under threat because of the ways in which this statement undermines the rule of law and people's ability to be protected and seek asylum. And uh, by virtue of that also works to structurally pin various nationalities against each other out of a feeling and sense of entitlement within the law over the other. And that does create tension between people in the camps. Right. It creates tension between people within the camps. It also, I mean, the, even the, the very, and Pan can also elaborate on this because he comes from a geography and architecture background, the very construction and structures of the camps themselves could be understood from a carceral lens. Do people have autonomy to settle in groupings based on kinship? based on social fabric so as to cope and survive the difficulties in which they have either just survived or are about to go through. For the most part, no, on, on the islands. Any sense of cohesion is systematically stifled and undermined both by the legal procedures themselves and also by the administration of the camps themselves. Who can stay where? Can people have access to cook for themselves? Can people have access to humane and dignified restrooms that are gender separated, etc.? These things work to, you know, in, in my analysis, stifle a sense of social cohesion and also stifle a sense of self-organizing and in the end, even more critically, inhibit any form of politicization or demand of basic equitable human rights. I have witnessed as well with clients in which I have worked with who held sit-ins, for example, due to the poor conditions, have been penalized for participating in attempting to create a sense of autonomy within that context and space and a demand for equitable humane treatment, let alone basic human rights. So your sense is that people aren't even allowed to organize or protest for better conditions? Within the, the official terms are detention hotspots, absolutely. Absolutely. They're highly militarized and securitized, but I would love to hear more from Pan and what he thinks. I think you have touched on some very, very interesting uh, uh, subjects. One is the notion of the classification of people according to nationality. And then you also mentioned the notion of, uh, of Manolava. To elaborate a little bit of that, this was a case that ended up in uh, the court in Strasbourg, in the European Court of Human Rights. Essentially, in the European Court of Human Rights, the ruling was that the Greek state should pay reparation to these workers because of failing to protect them, which is a landmark case and sets a precedent. And I think this raises the other aspect of classification. One side of classification is the nationality. So, for example, someone who is Syrian uh, has a much higher uh, chance of uh, getting asylum. Someone who is a Bangladeshi, for example, has almost minimal chances of getting asylum, even though they might come from, from persecution of uh, uh, different ways. But the other aspect that I think we have to put in this conversation is the, is the notion 
issue of, uh, of the social class. Because we have to remember that in Europe at the moment, there is multiple countries that offer golden visas, meaning that uh, anyone who has more than 250,000 euros to invest in property has access to, uh, to the EU. Essentially, this creates a different kind of uh, inequality in access to asylum. Because on one side, someone who's poor and cannot afford to pay this money is essentially stuck through the regular asylum processes. But someone who's rich and can pay this money can obtain a passport. For example, the, the cheapest golden visa you can get is the one in Greece, which uh, uh, by investing 250,000 uh, euros, you get uh, access to you get a residence permit in Greece and access to Schengen. Uh, for example, Cyprus, it costs 600,000 and you essentially get a passport immediately. So you also have this, let's say, distinct uh, separation of people according to class. The, 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 other, the other aspect is the uh, what Lina mentioned, the, the, the architecture of the camps and let's say the architecture of the humanitarian response in Greece. As Lina mentioned, we, we see uh, a lot of camps which are built in extremely isolated places for example, 20-30 minutes away from an urban settlement, meaning that people are stuck there not able to go to the supermarket without taking transport. Sometimes it's prohibitively expensive to take transport back and forth, meaning that they cannot socialize the community, they cannot access the services themselves, essentially creating physical barriers for people that do not allow them to build upon the little social networks that daily interaction with your neighbor can have. And in a lot of cases, these camps are cost quite significant sums of money to be built. So we do see, let's say, a systematic investment in infrastructure, which is by design, exclusive and isolated. Right. I think a really critical point to all of this is that these are newly developing and newly becoming entrenched policies, practices and infrastructures for Greece in particular. And I could, you know, say Europe at large, which very much borrow from and are influenced by and inspired by either private companies that have operated in conflict zones and come out of the United States and Western Europe, but also by U.S. policy itself. I recently was in New Mexico and, and witnessing and being able to see the detention centers and the policies of removal of children from their families. One cannot help but make the parallel connections between what is happening to refugees in southern Europe and the conditions in which people are going through. And also the increased militarization and securitization and use of biometric data information and the sharing of that information across systems within Europe and how that is being borrowed from policies that stem from Department of Homeland Security and beyond here in the United States. And I'd say the last part, which is a critical point that as an attorney, I have started to see more and more as an issue, and it intersects with many of the issues we've been discussing, both the carceral nature of the camps themselves, the lack of access to basic amenities and human needs, such as medical care, etc., is a case of a young child who was in need of medical care in a camp called Ritz which is actually in mainland Greece. So mainland Greece camps are theoretically considered to be in better conditions than those on the detention hotspots or the islands. However, the conditions are quite abysmal as well. And in this camp, an international NGO that is a provider for medical care decided to cut their program for evening and weekend medical care assistance or having a medical provider within the camp, despite the fact that the camp is quite far from any urban settlement or gathering. Why is that? Their official decision was because it was no longer considered an emergency crisis situation, meaning that the policy-driven migration crisis no longer was an emergency. And because of that, 
this child who needed access to medical care one evening and family called an ambulance to get access to medical care for this child. The ambulance did not come in time. Oftentimes, am hospitals may not always be able to understand or access the camps themselves. Again, there are language barriers possibly to give the medical providers or hospitals the benefit of the doubt, but at times there could be more insidious things that come into play. And the child died due to lack of access to medical care. And instead of reevaluating the policy of not having a nurse or a doctor nearby or present for this highly traumatized population whose trauma is being exacerbated by these conditions, instead the decision was to punitively punish the mother of the child for not having done, quote-unquote, better for the child. A mother who did not speak Greek was a refugee herself and was an ethnic minority as well from the country in which she was fleeing from and was threatened with her children being taken away from her. And so these policies that are newly becoming entrenched in Europe and applied to these underclass populations, as Pan described, whether it is refugees or economic migrants or beyond, we have to understand their global context and interconnection and how that connects to the U.S. policies in which of removing children from their families, whether they are refugees or migrants, or to the history of what that policy comes out of, which is the foster care system, which, you know, 90% of children who end up in foster care often end up in prison, which is rooted in a history of chattel slavery and the removal of indigenous children from their families and sent to boarding schools. And understanding that historical and legal genealogy helps us understand what are the broader systems that are newly becoming entrenched at play. This is a very interesting point, Lena. I was wondering, how do you think the U.S. is able to influence these mechanisms of uh, containing people and dealing with vulnerable populations? How do they export that? Do you know more about that? I think one of the aspects of it that we often overlook is the, the role of private companies. G4S, a private security firm, operates throughout the United States in ICE detention centers, which are largely privatized in the United States and lack uh, any oversight and transparency, which is now being put into question since the Trump policy on the U.S.-Mexico border. But at the same time, we do see G4S presence in asylum systems and asylum processes is, is present throughout the asylum process in the U.K., for example. Well, and I think the irony of it all is that the EU lauds itself as an arbiter of human rights, of humanitarianism, in contrast and comparison to the United States since the election of Donald Trump. But in actuality, what we see is an increasing and continuation between policies that are happening here in the U.S. towards migrant and immigrant and refugee populations um, to that of uh, Europe. Would you want to add more to that, Pan? I think the, the, the Frontex example is an interesting one. It's an EU agency, and essentially the notion of how this policy-driven massive human rights violation is developing on the back of the European Union, essentially being driven by the European Union. Because actually what we have seen since 2015 is, in the case of Greece, which makes it special when it comes to that, is that there was a change in the regulations of the Commission. So ECHO, the European Commission Civil Response and Humanitarian Aid Organization, which is the Director General responsible for responding to humanitarian disasters worldwide, as well to national disasters within the European Union, 
Mm-hmm. Essentially, the rules of the game were changed so that it can act within the European Union. Through what we saw in 2015 was the mobilization of specific funding instruments uh, as well as processes that essentially built up what we see in Greece right now. I'm not as theoretically qualified as I would like to be able to discuss this further, but to a huge extent, what we are seeing right now is that, uh, having, let's say, relatively abstract um, mechanisms of policy in combination with uh, uh, separate national organizations which are uh, not accountable to uh, nation states managing a humanitarian crisis as well as uh, managing Fortress Europe, let's say. And at the same time, we do see the development of uh, European Union mechanisms such as Frontex, which is, uh, uh, let's say, the, the border force of, uh, uh, of the European Union, into structures that are made to, uh, in some way, close off and create a hard border between uh, the European Union and its neighbors in the east as well as in the south. Which brings about wider questions of uh, governmentality and how how this is conducted in the long run. And building up on that, um, your organization was recently involved in issuing a report containing dozens of testimonies from refugees where they talked about the ways they were treated by Greek authorities. Can you talk about some of what people told you, some of the trends you observed from what people are describing? Uh, yes. We, along with two other organizations, published a report, which was uh, not the first report published. It was uh, one in a series of reports published about the practice of pushbacks. So, going back to what we were discussing earlier, there were there are two entry points in uh, Europe through Greece. One is through the Greek islands, which is uh, under the eu Turkey statement, meaning, meaning that people are geographically restricted to remain in the islands. And the other entry point is, is the land border with Turkey at the River Evros. The land border with Evros is not bound by the eu Turkey statement, meaning that people that cross from there can move on freely into mainland Greece. Uh, what has been observed over time, and it, it is now clear that this is a generalized practice, uh, as observed both by human rights organizations uh, as well as by the Council of Europe representatives, uh, is that there is a continuous use of uh, the illegal practice of pushbacks. Essentially, people crossing into Greece from the of Evros being stopped by the Greek police, the Greek military, as well as Frontex, uh, meaning uh, European European police forces that are present in Greece. And then they're illegally stripped of their papers, uh, illegally detained, uh, essentially kidnapped, uh, in some cases uh, beaten up and uh, treated violently, and then pushed back to Turkey without having the right to claim for asylum. Uh, and this is happening repeatedly. Most people that uh, my co-workers encounter uh, have gone through this process multiple times. So there's people that have gone through this process 10 and 20 times. And, uh, this is a highly legal practice, uh, not adhering to international law in any way, that refuses people the right to ask for asylum, as well as putting people in great danger as people are illegally pushed back to Turkey, often imprisoned, and in some cases even sent back to their countries of origin. And unfortunately, this is something which is uh, continuously denied both by the Greek state as well as the European Union. Whereas by now it is common knowledge and it's something that has been published multiple times by highly esteemed organizations such as Human Rights Watch as well as by in, in reports by the, the Council of Europe. It, it is um, interesting to see that there's very little action taken on a, a European level to address this. Mm. Perhaps related to that is, in my understanding, there's no consensus among European Union states how to handle people rescued also in the Mediterranean Sea. And we saw in the past few months multiple incidents of boats essentially carrying asylum seekers, refugees and migrants 
being refused to be allowed to dock anywhere in the Southern European Union. Why are things so ad hoc? Shouldn't the closest state have a responsibility to let people dock and not allow them to die, essentially, in the sea? Well, I think this speaks to a new precedent in the moment that we're in of the lack of rule of law being upheld and honored and the use of policies to justify the dehumanization and lack of humanitarian response to human beings uh, escaping horrid conditions, conflict, etc., to at least have access to various legal procedures and mechanisms that were designed within international law after World War II for this very reason. And I think the precedent that the United States is setting, both in its response to the caravan of migrants and refugees along its border, as well as the denial of UN special repertoires to come and investigate the conditions, is quite dangerous. And Europe is following that model as well in denying access to refugees who are stranded at sea the ability to, at the very least, seek shelter and possibly seek asylum and at least access legal procedures and mechanisms designed for people to at least have a chance at safety and protection. I know that basically what rights does a human being have the moment they had decided to seek asylum in a certain country, say people arriving in Greece, the moment they get there, what rights do they have in terms of applying for asylum. Can you explain a little bit that process in legal terms? Right. So part of the dangers of the EU-Turkey statement is that it's denying people's access and ability to seek asylum. Under the color of law, every human being, regardless of the reception location, reception port, whether or not it's a reception location for migrants or refugees, has a right to seek asylum because it's understood within international law that often those who are fleeing persecution often those who are fleeing violence and often those who are fleeing out of fear for their lives may not have access to entry points that have legal procedures and mechanisms in place for them to seek asylum. And so the use of this argument by both the Trump administration and the EU that these migrants and refugees are irregular and are not accessing border entry points that are designed for that very purpose that is illegal and therefore criminal is actually incorrect in international law and people have rights and access to seek asylum at any point upon entry. They do have to go through the various legal mechanisms and procedures that are available there. They do have to meet various legal bars that may be in place so as to ensure that they meet specific bars set by the law. For example, within U.S. refugee resettlement law, one of the key bars is questions around criminal history and past and national security and, and, and terrorism. However, the ways in which both immigration and refugee law has now come to use new policies surrounding national security and beyond works to distort in the public mind what people's rights and access through the law actually is, and therefore pushes forward policies that actually contravene the law 
but we only come to realize after the fact that it's done because it's done so without transparency. For example, the removal of children from families who are attempting to seek asylum along the U.S. border is a policy that actually has been happening for some time now and is not new, uh, but only recently has become apparent to the public mind and intention and now is able to be contested within the court of law. That is Chicago-based attorney Lina Ode speaking with Mira Nabolsi about the ongoing refugee crisis in Greece. We'll hear more of Mira's conversation with Pan Zanatakis and with Chicago-based attorney Lina Ode. Stay with us. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. don't need to claim asylum in the first EU state they reach because many of them do want to move on and maybe you know join relatives friends or whatever in other countries right and also based on absolutely however again because of the EU Turkey statement it's relegating people to be forced to have geographic restriction placed on them and then if they are able to pass and not be rejected from the admissibility process on the detention hotspots in the islands, they then can attempt to seek asylum, but only in Greece. And Pan, Greece has been accused of misusing funds from the European Union to deal with the crisis, according to an investigation by the EU's anti-fraud agency. Is that a debate in organizations like the one you're working for and within the communities that you work with? Do you see yourself, maybe, mismanagement by Greek authorities? Most definitely. Uh, it is quite complicated. So it happens that the organization currently working with, uh, the, the people that started the organization were among the people that put forward this petition in the European Union a couple of years ago. And this process started through, uh, uh, through that petition. When it comes to mismanagement, yes, we do see that. Uh, but I think it's also interesting to ask the question of what is this money intended to do in the first place. One aspect is how the money was ultimately managed, but there's also the question of what is the expectation, what is this money for, in a way. So if we split into A to B, and, uh, and if we discuss the, the goals of uh, how is this money used, it's not earmarked to create favorable reception conditions, but it is earmarked to create uh, a hostile situation that deters people from coming there. What we talked about earlier about investing uh, significant amounts of money in uh, camps, uh, in some cases temporary, when it comes to actual mismanagers, we do, we do see a lack of appropriate oversight of how the funds are spent, both internally and externally. At this point, I think it's important to mention that not all funds used in Greece have been managed by the Greek authorities. And mismanagement is something that we, have, that, uh, we can assign to uh, lack of appropriate uh, checks and balances along the steps, along the stages of the, the flow of this money. So to briefly answer, yes, there has been mismanagement. But in my view, the uh, important question is, what was the original intention of this money to start with? Mm. Based on that, I think it's important to clarify that the, the humanitarian response in Greece has been predominantly a single donor operation, meaning that uh, probably 97% of the available funds 
have been funds from the European Union and is essentially policy making through funding. I think those are really critical points that Pan pointed out because while there may be mismanagement of funds, I think the critical question is Greece as a member of the EU and as a country that underwent immense economic crisis and distress since 2011 structurally already had a series of issues and conditions as a country within itself attempting to simply overcome and recover from the 2011 crisis. And so while there may be a mismanagement of funds, the question is why does EU policy relegate the responsibility and onus of refugees and migrants onto a country such as Greece who, by closing the border, mm. by the EU-Turkey statement. And why is money primarily earmarked not necessarily to assist and aid in the development of an infrastructure towards meeting holistic needs for both refugees, migrants, and the Greek citizens themselves, but instead towards further securitization and militarization and criminalization of those peoples. It seems like it's become almost a norm now to uh, delegate these responsibilities to a state. And in many cases, it's states that have lower levels of human rights or uh, respecting of rule of law, as we've seen with North African states and, for example, Italy's uh, attempt to have those states deal with migrants and refugees trying to cross as well. Right. And I think another, if we want to take a more political economy and historical lens when we understand the migration of populations, whether they are refugees or economic migrants. And of course, while the law does make a distinction between populations, these are all people and populations who are responding to deep uh, forms of sheer violence. And so understanding the relationship, for example, for nation states such as Italy to that of Libya, which has a colonial history to Libya and discussing the patterns of migration and its foreign policy and ongoing relationship with Libya without understanding that historical context would be a mistake. And Greece, for example, another uh, peripheral European, Southern European country that embodies something of up to 30 to 35% of the EU coastline has never historically colonized any global Southern country. And so this policy-driven crisis for the country of Greece as well, on top of its pre-existing economic structural issues dating back to that of the 2011 crisis, puts it in a deep quagmire in many ways. And understanding the power relationships between European nation states or other other nation states and that of countries in which large populations of people are migrating to is critical. But I think one last point which we cannot forget is that the majority of people who are displaced and either refugees or migrants are displaced into countries within the global south and not to the global north, meaning the majority of refugees and displaced people are either internally displaced or displaced into countries within the continent of Africa, within the Middle East, within Central Asia, within Latin America, not necessarily within Europe or the United States. So again, the onus is on countries who historically have been 
either disempowered due to the colonial relationship with the colonial north and the ongoing neo-colonial and neoliberal economic policies in their relationships and entanglements with those nations and are still carrying the burden of taking in mass numbers of people who are displaced due to conflict climate change and deep economic uh, violence. Uh, what Lina mentioned about the financial crisis in Greece is uh, quite significant. But on the, in, the, in the case of Greece, what we have is on one side the need to uh, enhance and invest in social services so that uh, they're able to uh, receive newcomers and tend to uh, newcomers' needs. And at the same time, we have a welfare state that has been uh, 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 that has shrunk, uh, funding has been cut, and is not able to respond to uh, the needs of uh, uh, the citizens, let alone uh, people who are let alone newcomers. So in this way, on one side, we have the possibility of the state to adequately respond to the need by hiring more people, by uh, investing in, in social services and so on. And on the other side, a large amount of money flowing to the country and being managed in a parallel system, which does not essentially create, what Lena mentioned, a holistic approach to welfare uh, of everyone. What we're seeing to a large extent is that we have institutional racism, which is coming to the forefront and uh, it's becoming policy. A xenophobic, Islamophobic narrative, which is uh, fueling the, the far right, uh, inability of, uh, let's say, the, the remaining liberal uh, European governments to shift this narrative into one which is uh, welcoming. And uh, essentially what we're seeing is that the, the slow desecration of, uh, uh, let's say, the, the human rights consensus that had been built uh, over time after the Second World War, uh, leading to uh, a tacit or tacit acceptance of uh, policy and action uh, that is detrimental to people's lives, uh, as well as to the wider evolution of uh, uh, human rights in, in the region. Finally, I wanted to open it up for you to say some final words on solutions and the future. In the work that you do, what solutions are being discussed? It seems to me that there is larger economic hardships and conflicts that the international community had failed to solve, which is prompting a lot of this crisis. So what are some of the solutions that people in your community of aid workers and legal people are talking about and how can listeners support? Right. So I think terms of solutions and steps moving forward in the political climate and social climate that we're in, further adherence to and uplifting of legal norms and the rule of law as it exists, because we are living in a moment in which the rule of law is being eroded uh, and the laws that do exist are not uh, protecting those who are most vulnerable, uh, as well as the creation of and the entrenchment of newly developing, securitizing and militarizing systems that further work to criminalize the movement of people across borders, whether they are refugees, migrants um, or surviving uh, impacts due to climate change. The other critical point for any attorney who's working in the human rights field with refugees is the uh, an end to the EU-Turkey deal and agreements like it, such as the Sahel Agreement between the EU and Northern African countries, which will further work again to militarize borders and boundaries and penalize people who are responding to deep systemic structural issues, be it conflict, be it uh, persecution, 
torture, detention, or broader economic issues that are happening in various regions, as well as impacts of climate change. And I think the last and really critical point is, uh, and this is my shifting from my lawyer hat into a more policy analysis, is that we really need to get to the root cause of the creation of displacement of populations, particularly in a time where it looks and appears as though the the displacement of people is protracted. For example, if we look at the ongoing uh, crisis of Palestinian refugees who have been in displacement for uh, over 70 years now, this model is by no means a model we want replicated across conflicts and populations globally. And so ending and seceding wars within regions that have been embattled in conflict for decades now and a further uplifting of the human rights bodies and approaches that were developed in response to major conflict after World War II, and cultivating and developing new systems and responses both within legal and refugee resettlement regimes and beyond that speak to and answer in a holistic approach the issues that impact people today in the contemporary moment that we're in and as we continue on into the future. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's very, very important to try to uh, to protect and uh, promote a rights-based approach, which is something which we, we see uh, organizations deviating from. Essentially, we see a lot of uh, organizations trying to respond to needs based on what is being asked even by the funder, which uh, in this case is mainly policy-driven, it's EU policy-driven. And I guess it might be similar in the U.S. I think it's very important for organizations, human rights workers, to try to defend a rights-based approach as a way forward. The other aspect is revamping EU policy fundamentally, actually, essentially rethinking the scope of the European Union within this context. As what we have seen in the past five years has been the European Union accepting to be the perpetrator of human rights violations. And uh, this is a wider, let's say, thing to be addressed in order to be able to fight against the surge of uh, the far right that we see all over Europe. The other very important thing is information, making sure that we get as better information as possible and building a narrative which is based on facts rather than fiction, which we see right now, as mainly the xenophobic narrative in Europe is being formed. And then it's very important to also think in the small scale and try to see interesting exam projects and citizens, citizens' action and self-organized groups working on a very small scale, but in actuality providing interesting solutions to everyday problems and how this could be, if not scaled up, networked together to create a different approach, which uh, is not a, a systematic machine of uh, human rights abuses. Did you want to say just anything about how people can learn more or support? Sure. I think for folks who want to be able to learn more support, I think it's really critical that we take a stance with elected officials to take a more principled position that is within a human rights framework when it applies to refugees. I think we also need to put pressure on our elected officials and do organizing within our own communities to impact policy as it pertains to the ongoing conflicts that are happening, and also to encourage divestment when it comes to fossil fuels. I know that these may seem like not obvious responses to the ongoing crisis of refugees and mass displacement of populations of people, but at the end of the day, people are being 
displaced due to deep root causes. And we want to be able to have legal regimes and a rule of law that can meet their needs and protect them as it pertains to the color of the law, but as well prevent the ongoing catastrophes that have happened throughout various regions in recent years. Lena Ode is an attorney, researcher, and independent consultant from Chicago. She is currently consulting with Pro Bono Global Refugee Protection Project, where she provides strategic litigation to impact policy and conditions that affect refugees. She has also worked with refugees who are stranded in Greece, Jordan, and Lebanon, particularly those who are victims of torture and detention. Pan Zanatakis works at Human Rights 360, a civil society organization based in Greece, whose mission is to protect and empower the rights of all with no discrimination but with a special focus on the most disadvantaged and vulnerable populations. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio, or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. Music